in general systems, they want you to comply. They don't encourage you to fail. And so the result is that our system is not teaching you to become an entrepreneur. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to StoryMark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they live. On today's show, entrepreneur, investor, author, and co-founder of Waze, Uri Levin. serial entrepreneur of the highest order. Uri Levin has been a leader in tech for over 30 years. His startups include Pontera, Fairfly, Refundit, and Citri. After envisioning a more streamlined process of understanding traffic, he co-founded the Waze Navigation app in 2007. Now used by more than 750 million drivers worldwide, Waze was acquired by Google in 2013 for $1.1 billion. But Uri didn't stop there. He went on to be the first investor and board member of Moveit, a public transportation app that was later sold for almost a billion dollars, and involved himself in new startups, mentorship, philanthropy, and solving problems of all kinds with tremendous levels of success. And this is what inspires me about Uri, his intense focus and ability to problem solve while still remaining flexible and adaptable. He has the ability to fall in love with a problem, as his book is named, and treats the roller coaster of entrepreneurship not with panic, but optimism. Uri grew up in Ramata Sharon, where his reputation as a disruptor was already evident from childhood. As he tells me of his early school years, I was troublemaker. By and large, I had a lot of friends, and I was troublemaker. And people liked me for being troublemaker, and people hated me for being troublemaker. We do have something in common. Um, I get kicked out of school. But uh, why were you a troublemaker, looking back? I didn't accept anything for granted, right? So if you would say something, then I would challenge that, right? And obviously that will cause me a lot of troubles. And uh, not always, but in many cases, I would... Uh, I'll call the bluff. So I ended up to uh, to be a troublemaker and uh, and pretty funny guy, and uh, I like that. Around the age of 16, I had my first personal computer. That was a Sinclair ZX81, and that was back in 1981, the first uh, home personal computer. And I actually liked that. So I thought that maybe this is what I will be doing when I grow up. And I actually did that for a, for a short while or a long while. And then I, um, I moved to different things. You served in a special intelligence unit, 8200. Um, I'm assuming that you cannot tell us a lot about what you did there, but... Uh, of course I can, but then I will need to kill you. <laughs> of course. So what type of experience did you get there that served you later on? I think that in general, when you go at the age of 18 to do your military service, it matures you faster and you learn skills that... Uh, in other life, you wouldn't learn, or you would learn them so late in your career development that they are could be even meaningless, right? And so you would learn working in teams, you would realize that giving up is not an option, you would um, develop leadership skills, you would face challenges that, uh, that if you go to college at the age of 18, you don't face, right? And um, 
And so that all mature you way faster and mature also the um, the Israeli ecosystem dramatically in the sense that nearly everyone goes to do their military service, right? And amongst them, there are a lot of people that mature faster. The great impact of the IDF on the Israeli entrepreneurship ecosystem, there are actually two factors. One, that you go there, and the other one is that you leave and this is really important because you leave at a relatively young age and you still have the entire life ahead of you. And uh, in particular, I've spent uh, more than five years at uh, the 8200 unit and I made uh, a lot of friends that later on became partners in my career. Number one and number two employees at Waze were um, actually those that uh, people that were we served together. And now one of them is uh, is CTO of a different startups that I'm uh, involved at. So you create relationships that last, and you deal with very intellectual challenges. How did the idea for Waze come to be? And I know that you had two co-founders, so I'm interested. How did you guys get together? Amir and Ehud, the two other um, co-founders, um, they actually had one concept that was introduced to me by a friend. And when I uh, saw them, it's actually answer a different I would say, um, journey that I was trying to build. And uh, um, as soon as uh, we met, it was clear to me that this is going to become uh, Waze or what will eventually become Waze. So essentially, there there were um, two places where this idea is starting to evolve. One of them was my concept that back in 2006, we were um, traveling up north to Ventula and, uh, um, and we were like a in a large family vacation, right? So we were like 10 cars there. And uh, essentially we had at the time four smaller kids. So it took us a longer while to, to get our act together and start driving. Um, and I realized that everyone left and I started to call them up to try to figure out what is traffic like. And uh, back then there were only two routes coming from Antula back to Tel Aviv, one through Vadiara or Vadi Milek, and that was the only two options. And those that were on one route told me that it's nightmare. And those that are on the other one say that it's actually pretty okay. And I realized that the only thing that I need is someone ahead of me on the road to tell me what's going on. At the same time, or about the same time, um, Ehud created a free map. And free map was a crowdsourcing of map data. It actually is a, is a prototype of a system that maps as you drive. I need to have a lot of drivers all over, right? So otherwise I don't have enough data. And, and obviously the flywheel here is the more data that you have, then the quality of the service improves. The quality of the service improves. It's easier to bring more users. You have more users, then you have more data and so forth. Now, when you think about it, you realize that, okay, in order to have a lot of users, the application needs to be free at the time. Licensing map data was expensive, very expensive. And so there is no way that you can actually offer free application with licensing map data. And everyone in the market at that moment was actually licensing map data and selling the application. And so when, when I met Ehud and Amir, then this is the eureka moment for me that I realized that, okay, now I know that we can build it. And so the magic of ways essentially is that Everything is being crowdsourced, right? Everything is being crowdsourced. Everything that the application uses is being crowdsourced, not just traffic information, which is obvious, and, you know, speed traps reporting and so forth, but the map itself. 
in 2007 when we met, we decided that we're going to build Waze. It was um, a long while before we were able to raise capital because because um, it's hard, you know. If if you think of uh, building a startup as a roller coaster journey, then then raising capital is going to be a roller coaster journey in the dark. It was about eight months until we were able to raise capital. Um, and we started the company formally at the beginning of 2008, so March 2008. And it was a few months later until we came out with the name Waze. And uh, um, uh, there is a nice story about the name. Um, we originally thought that maybe it should be Waze that it's spelled correctly, W-A-Y-S, right? And then we figure out that Waze.com, that's spelled correctly, is owned by someone and that someone wanted half a million dollars that we did not have. But Waze, that it's spelled that way, um, they wanted $12,000 and that we did have. And so we ended up with this name. Um, later on, people will try to explain why this name makes sense, right? So Waze rhymes with maze and... Uh, yeah, whatever, but the, the reality is that we simply did not have half a million dollars. Of course. Were there moments where you thought this might not work? There were a few of them every day. It was whole year of iterations until we figured it out. It's a long journey, a very long journey. And in particular, there is a long, very long period of time that there is no traction, right? And so you're trying to figure out product market fit. And it takes you time. And meanwhile, you have no traction, right? Because users will download the app. The story was absolutely amazing. We, the drivers, are going to help out other drivers to avoid traffic jams. And so people downloaded the app and it did not deliver. And so they churned, right? They basically say, okay, this is not good enough. During this period of time, 2010, we ran out of cash. We needed to raise capital. We eventually were able to raise capital weeks before end of cash. Now, I think that many of the startups will tell you the same thing, right? That there was always a period of time that you were pretty close for shutting down and you, we eventually were able to raise capital. Um, and then 2011, the magic started to happen. And this is where we knew that we're going to make it, right? Because you figure out that, okay, you're getting into the critical mass or into the, the, the where the flywheel works in multiple places. And in the U.S., that was uh, one metropolitan after the other. It was Los Angeles first, and then San Francisco, and then Atlanta, and Washington, D.C., and New York, and Chicago, one after the other. In Europe, that was one country after the other. Italy first, and then Netherlands, and France, and Spain, and, and Sweden, and one country after that. Uh, and that was the moment that I knew that this is going to work, right? Because... Um, what we had, which is pretty unique, is the frequency of use. And were you making money at that time? No. 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 So the, the goal was always get as many customers as possible, users, and then sell the company? No, 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 not at all. The, the, look, once you figure out product market fit, you actually switch gears to a different phase of the journey. And there are two other critical paths, and one of them is growth, and one of them is making money. In consumer space, most of the companies will try growth first, and then if they don't have word of mouth, they will switch back into business model. And B2B companies will start with business model. But at the end of the day, it's not up to you to choose. You want to think that it's up to you to choose which path you should follow next, but it's up to the use case. If you have high frequency of use, Go to growth first, 
because you're gonna demonstrate word of mouth growth and you will win the market that's it now it's really simple if you create a lot of value to a lot of people you will figure out a way to make money out of that so it became very successful and in 2013 Google famously acquired ways for over one billion dollars and do you remember the moment when the deal was signed of course I do but uh, but uh, and you probably can read that in my book that was more than one moment right that was a continuous moment because um, there were few other offers beforehand that obviously was pretty significant a life-changing event um, uh, for me and actually for all of ways employees all of the ways employees have options um, and that was significant event for all of them and I felt more proud because of that than because of the personal impact so what it does to all the people that uh, worked with us throughout this journey and that was even more magical moment the good news is that when Google acquire you they acquire you in order to keep not in order to destroy right and so that was their promise that we're going to keep ways uh, with the mission that we had of helping drivers to avoid traffic jams and with the team that we had and so forth. When you think of, of an exit, then you think about it from multiple perspectives, right? And they are all confused in your head. And this is a, a moment that you, um, you think of one thing and a second later, something completely different, right? So if I need to give an advice to an entrepreneur, uh, then I would say think of... Uh, um, three or four aspects of it and based on that decide if you want to uh, to take an offer or not one is if this is going to be a life-changing event for you if it is then consider it favorably if it's not then then keep on keep on building right number two is this startup once in a lifetime for you if you think you're going to build more startups then this is an excellent opportunity to start building more startups if you think that this is once in a lifetime company, then stick to it. Number three, what's going to happen to the rest of the team? All those people that were with you throughout this journey, what's going to happen to them? And if eventually someone is going to acquire the company and fire everyone, then maybe you don't want that, right? And number four that most people don't think of is, uh, how does the day after tomorrow looks like? Because all of a sudden you belong to a new company and you might be reporting to the head of the new division or existing division. That division had their own agenda and so forth and everything changes. And you at least want to clarify two things, right? So number one, that there is chemistry between you and, and the new, new so-called boss. And number two is that at least the vision is aligned. So you all believe in the same thing moving forward obviously that might change over time but you do believe in that and based on those four make your decision so let me say something about uh, the day that movie was sold when you think about uh, shareholders then you realize that wait a minute every ex-employee that exercises their option is actually a shareholder right a small one but a shareholder yeah. During the weekend, co-founders um, called up all the 70 people that exercised the options and actually were small shareholders and they needed to get their approval. And each and every call went at like, okay, this is near, I want to tell you this and this and this. And there was a how moment on or a eureka moment on the other side. 
in a lot of excitement. And the day after, Nier called me and said, you know what? That was the most rewarding moment in my life. And one of the things that I decided is that next time that there is an exit, I actually prefer to do that with a lot of people one by one and get them the moment of glory and the opportunity to be part of their enjoyment and of their joy. Do you ever find yourself using Google Maps as opposed to Waze? Of course I do. Google Maps has a different uh, method of use, and I usually use that when I need to walk, find new places, occasionally for public transportation in some areas, uh, but not for driving. Not for driving. Okay. It's a big fight that I have with my wife. She only wants to use Google Maps, and I insist on ways, and it's, uh, you can imagine us driving in the same car together. What I heard is... Um, was a few years back, someone came to me and said, thank you for ways you saved my marriage. And I said, what? Say, well, because of ways, we don't argue anymore in the car, so you saved my marriage. So I ended <laughs> up to be a marriage consultant in that sense. But uh, but obviously, if uh, um, you know each one of you have their own um, preferred app, then I cannot help you anymore. Yeah, in my case, you caused me a lot of problems, so maybe your next app will save my marriage. And you just published a book, Fall in Love with a Problem, Not the Solution, a handbook for entrepreneurs. How did you get the idea to write this book? There was a, an MBA class that I did that was essentially the base for the book. And when, when I did that in multiple places and when I spoke at multiple um, events, then I realized that um, besides the inspiration, there is something that people are actually taking out of that and, and maybe even something actionable. And this is where I, I thought that, uh, um, you know what, I can be way more impactful if I write a book and a lot of entrepreneurs or a lot of people would read the book. Now, COVID uh, ended up to be an excellent time to write a book. There is a request in this book, and the request is about paid forward. Right? So if you are going to take something from this book that will help you or will make you more successful, then I would ask you to pay it forward and do something similar to someone else. Tell them something that will make them more successful. Now, the reason is that I think that entrepreneurs are going to change the world, right? And they are going to make it a better place. And this is why I feel empowered and, and grateful for writing this book. So my sister is a principal of a middle school, and I told her that I'm going to interview you. I, I said, I asked my brothers and sister, any questions? And she said, yes, how do you teach kids to become entrepreneurs? How do you inspire them to take action? My dad was uh, um, very influential to me. More than anything else, he encouraged me to try new things, right? So every time that I would uh, come to him with the craziest idea, he would say, uh, why don't you give it a try? Right? And occasionally it ended up to be very painful try, but there was no judgment of, of trying new things, right? Um, it was actually encouraged. And I think that I owe my entrepreneur's personality to him in that sense. The challenge is that in order to go into an entrepreneurship journey, at the end of the day, that is going to be a personal decision of you. And the personal decision by and large is 
a combination of two things, right? Number one, the passion that you have. So, so you're really deeply in love with the problem and deeply you want to solve that. This is one part. The other side of the equation is the combination of fear of failure and alternative cost, right? So if you are um, a very successful lawyer in a, in a large office and you're making millions of dollars a year, then the alternative cost is really high and the likelihood that you will actually have more passion then the alternative cost is becoming smaller. In general, systems, they want you to comply. They don't encourage you to fail. They don't encourage you to experiment. They don't encourage you to challenge anything. And so the result is that our system is not teaching you to become an entrepreneur. Just imagine that you send your kids to school and you expect them to come home with A+, right? That's it and anything else is going to be a failure. And so you discourage them from failing, right? And the result is that they will be afraid to fail because they are being judged or punished or whatever for failures and not encouraged to try something else, try something new, try it again. And that's a major aspect. So if school can teach you to fail, that is going to be absolutely amazing. So you're investing and giving back and you're mentoring many other people. Um, I'm assuming this is your philanthropy. Are you involved in any other philanthropic causes or projects? So I'm giving back a lot, right? I'm giving back my experience, my know-how, my time and, and everything. But I'm giving back in order to make a bigger impact. And so it's always about doing good and doing well. And I think that many of my startups have um, a derivative of doing good. Waze has also donated options to the Tmura Foundation, a public fund where Israeli high-tech companies support youth and educational charities, right? And nearly all of my startups are doing the same. Oh, so this is amazing. So um, a lot of the success, and I believe that Waze is one of the only companies that made more than a million dollars to Tmura Foundation, and uh, therefore... One out of five. The wow. first one and one out of five. Amazing. I'm going to ask you a few questions that I ask each of our guests. First is, what piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? I spoke with many entrepreneurs that their startup failed and, um, and asked them why, what happened, right? And about half said the team was not right. And uh, I kept on thinking, okay, what do you mean the team was not right? So I heard not good enough as a major reason. And another reason that I heard is that we had uh, communication issues or something that I actually called ego management issues. But then I asked them the most interesting question. When did you know that the team is not right? Now, all of them knew within the first month. Within the first month, there was one guy that told me before we even started. And he said, wait a minute. If you knew within the first month that the team is not right, and you didn't do anything, the problem was not that the team was not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make hard decisions. Making hard decisions is hard. Making easy decisions is easy. This is why in most organizations, this decision will go all the way to the top. The reality is that the problem with not firing someone that does not fit is that everyone knows. You're working in a small organization, there is someone that is way under-delivered or someone that is a completely jerk and no one wants to work with this guy. 
And so when you hire a new guy, mark your calendar for 30 days down the road and ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this guy? And if the answer is no, then fire them immediately. Because from this point on, you are creating damage to the entire organization. If the answer is yes, then I would say do something completely different and, and go into this person and say you are very excited that they have joined. You are They are exceeding your expectations and if possible, give them more equity or something like that. Because if you don't do that and everyone knows, the result is going to be that the top performing people would leave. Knowing what I know today, would you do something different? And if the answer is yes, then do something different. What are you currently obsessed with? So I'm really passionate about my book and, and trying to get it out to as many people as possible. I see that a way to create a bigger impact and, uh, and greater good. This is my probably most significant mission for now. Obviously, all of my startups, but, uh, but I'm always thinking of the next one. What's your most glamorous failure? Yet to come. <laughs> What are you most optimistic about? Being an entrepreneur, you have to be very optimistic, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't go into this journey. So imagine that there is a gravel road, right? And you drive on, on this gravel road and, uh, and there are a lot of pitfalls and bumps and so forth. If you travel slow, let's say at five or 10 miles per hour, you will feel every bump. You will feel every part of the gravel. If you are speeding up to 30 or 40 miles per hour, it's all of a sudden become flat. It's all of a sudden become less noisy, smoother ride, and way better way to, to pass that. So, so instead of seeing pit holes, see the road. Uwe Levin, thanks for being on our show. Thank you. I've enjoyed that. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrex Studios iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Patrick Emil, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and later out. See you next time.